Okay. We are we are armed. Armed. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. Good morning, everybody, even though you on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will be hearing the Montpelier Happy Hour at 2 p.m. We are live on Facebook at the lovely hour of 7.14 a.m. <laughs> with Representative Laura Sebelia, Representative Emily Kornheiser, and myself, your host, Olga Peters. Welcome to the Montpelier Happy Hour. And hello, Laura. Hello, Emily. Good morning. It's been quite a week in the legislature. Um, the Senate has has uh, put forward a budget, passed a, what, a $7.2 billion budget. And then, of course, the Global Solutions Act, which is what we're going to talk now about. Um, for those who are following along at home, that is H-688. Um, the governor vetoed it. And it looks like uh, the House has overridden the veto. It looks like the Senate will override the veto. Help me and help the listeners at home understand what were some of the governor's concerns and why do why does the legislature feel the bill as it stands now is the better option um, compared to some of the solutions the governor wanted you to change? that makes sense at 714 in the morning. And can I, while, while Laura gathers her thoughts, um, remind listeners that some six months ago or so, we had a show about the Global Warming Solutions Act when we were first passing it through the house. And I believe Tim Briglin came on, Representative Tim Briglin yes. came on to talk to us about the, um, talk to us a bill that before the house passed it and then sent it to the Senate and then it came back and then it got vetoed. And now we're back here again, because this is, actually very fast for government work. It is. And for those who uh, need another reminder, the Global Solution Act focuses on climate change mm -hmm. and mitigating climate change. It does. Yes. And I'm so happy to hear Tim was on. Tim, the amount of work that he put in, um, folks like yourself, Emily, uh, part of the, the Climate Caucus last fall. Wow. Um, you know, I feel really good about this bill. So I was happy that we overrode yesterday. Um, you know, some of the governor's concerns, um, you know, I will say, I will start by saying um, that the administration was involved with this bill early on in the session. Um, prior to COVID, um, we had ongoing um, dialogue with them. Um, the bill actually was introduced um, the, the year before, mm -hmm. uh, a, a separate bill. Um, but also called the Global Warming Solutions Act. And it really, you know, based on feedback from the governor uh, and others, it really was- Including you, Laura. What's that? And, Including and you. Yes, yeah. there was no way I would support it. Um, and, uh, and so Representative Briglin actually, um, in particular, uh, spent the better part of a year really trying to understand the, the challenges that folks had that wanted to move on climate change, including the governor and how to put forward a more responsible bill. Um, you know, we took a lot of testimony, um, worked with the governor. Uh, he was pretty consistent um, on his concerns um, about the size of the council. So the council's 24 members, um, about um, the, the cause of action that is in the bill. Um, and then also about the 
um, the fact that the legislature did not have to approve the plan. Um, and you know what I'm here to tell you is none of those things are new concepts. They're all concepts that exist now uh, in state government. <clears throat> and um, you know I think I think that um, you know we can talk about those aspects piece by piece if you like. Um, the thing that I spoke about yesterday was really about, um, you know, there's been a lot of um, a lot of talk about this unelected, um, unapproved, um, you know, no, accountable to no one board that is being brought together to develop a climate plan, a plan for climate change um, and adaptation in Vermont, <clears throat> and a lot of insistence that legislature legislators should create that plan. Uh, legislators create very few of those types of plans. That's really the fact of the matter. We, They're almost you know, always created by either a department or a yes. non-elected but appointed board commission, et cetera. I mean, we have task forces, boards and commissions, but how most of our planning is done. We don't have the right. capacity within state within the legislature to do that kind of planning work. It's something yeah. that I talk about all the time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, you might find a legislator or two on a committee that is, um, putting together a plan because they happen to have some expert knowledge or experience in the subject matter, um, but pretty typical for uh, for when you're putting together a plan to have it be representative. So um, this plan uh, has uh, eight appointees from the governor, including many members of his cabinet, chaired by the governor. Um, the Speaker of the House uh, has um, eight appointees and the committee on committees uh, in the Senate, which is that group of three, they also have eight appointees. And there are, um, you know, and that's how almost every commission in right. state government is mm -hmm. like yes. sort of um, more important commission in state government is formed. It's those right. sort of three groups of people or three people um, appoint positions to it. Right. And making sure that um, you know that that the various branches have uh, have their have their um, have their folks there that they think are credible and helpful to the process. So, you know, there will be folks from business. There will be folks. There will be climate experts. Um, there will be environmental advocates. There will be folks in the manufacturing sector. Um, there will be folks from the fuel you know from the fuel sector. Because fossil fuels, I mean, that industry, those are really important jobs. That's, you know, an economic um, uh, contributor to our economy. You know, like there, there's a huge effect there. Part of this bill is about how are we going to grapple with the effects from climate change and mm -hmm. having to reduce fossil fuel uses. That was one of the governor's um, concerns um, was about this unelected, unaccountable board. <clears throat> so fairly typical. Um, that they will then come together to create a plan. They're charged with creating a plan to meet the goals that the legislature already has um, around emissions reductions. We're putting those uh, goals in statute, but the plan is to help us achieve the goals. And uh, we have put those um, goals in statute before. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so do we, just putting those goals in statute clearly isn't enough. We needed to go a step further. And so both this commission and some of the accountability mechanisms in it are, are sort of the next step to really get it done. Right, we can't, I mean, we can't do it without a plan. 
into, you know, putting together this plan and, you know, uh, the governor and, and, and a few others, a few of my colleagues, um, a few actually key members on my committee that voted against the bill, um, wanted the legislature to have to approve this bill. Hmm. Um, and that, um, that, uh, that is not, um, that's really a way to make sure that we do nothing. <laughs> for, for the listeners at home, you should have seen Laura's face just now because you could tell she was trying to put together the right words to, yeah. to <laughs> say that. Yes. Sometimes they don't come out the correct words, but you know, that's the honest truth. I mean, if we were, uh, you know, if in order for anything to happen, we had to approve um, the plan, um, you know, it's likely that the plan would then become very political um, mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, extended time for, um, for passage of the plan. Sort of like, um, well, uh, so <laughs> at the end of the day, this, I know I'm still thinking, I know you guys are laughing because you know what I'm doing. So at the end of the day, um, this plan will come forward and um, in order for it to be enacted, we have to have rules that are brought forward, which are not laws, they're rules. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then- the you know, we have, Can I, one more, one more sort of context pause for listeners. I don't I, know if we've helpful, ever I'm, gotten I'm, into the rulemaking I'm, process on the Montpelier Happy Hour before. We have, no. And we probably should have spent a lot more time on it sometime. But I yes. think what's important for people to understand is, so you make a law and it's like, Sometimes it's more specific than it actually should be, but it's often quite broad. And then the way the law is implemented, sort of the, um, I think a normal person would call them policies and not rules. Is yeah, procedures, policies. Procedures, procedures. Yeah, is a negotiation basically between the administration and the legislature. So the administration puts those forward. It's sort of the interpretation of the law. And then that's actually all approved by a committee. In the legislature, it's in the a joint committee, right? Yes, it's a joint legislative committee. Yeah, it's called and the it has to start with the it has to start with ICAR, which is you know in the administration where the administration has to look at these rules. So, uh, implementation of this plan um, will happen through new legislation, through rulemaking, and definitely through the appropriations process. And <laughs> yes. none of those things can happen without lawmakers. Um, you know, this is, this is really significant legislation. And so, you know, this notion that um, legislators, um, you know, are not, will not be accountable for the work, um, that legislators um, are not going to be held responsible for difficult decisions. Um, you know, most legislators uh, work really hard and, you know, communicate, but you know, you have some that, um, that don't pay attention, that aren't communicating, that don't know what's going on uh, on every issue. I, I mean, there's a lot of the words. But, you know, in that case, you know, I suppose it is possible that, you know, some legislators may not um, know what's happening, um, may not participate in the process, may not help their constituents engage um, in creation of the plan. Um, and all that of those things, I think, are our responsibility to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in any that would, in any that would be true even if we were taking it back and passing legislation about it, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There would be disconnected you know? folks. Yeah. And 
Absolutely. And there always are. Mm -hmm. There always are. It's easier to be, you know, what is the phrase? It's easier to be stupid to be angry than, I don't know. Anyway, um, so those are, those are two of the governor's points. And the third point, uh, the two points were unelected, unaccountable board, legislature doesn't have to approve the consent. Mm -hmm. So therefore, legislature gets to um, not be responsible for all these hard decisions that have to be made. Um, the third point was um, about the uh, cause of action and the right to mm -hmm. sue. And, uh, you know, it did not matter how many times we walked through this. Um, and we walked through it a number of times with the, administ with the administration. Um, I personally walked through it, um, you know, probably close to a dozen times with various members of the administration. <clears throat> the right, we have the right, uh, citizens have the right to sue for um, enforcement of the law. They have the right to sue if they believe that, you know, we've, uh, we legislated for legislative overreach like we've made a mistake where we've passed a law that's in violation of the constitution. Um, you know, and that's like on a normal day, right? Like yes, citizens can just sue anytime. That's, that's the part way of freedom. Yes. yes, that's part of democracy. Like you get to say, you know, in our country, we have three branches of government. We have the legislative, the executive, and the, and the judicial, you know? And so the judicial, the courts are specifically in place to be a check on the administrative government, you know, the governor, the president, um, and the legislative, you know, us or our, our federal counterparts. And that is their role. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's why they exist. So uh, that can happen now on anything. In fact, I personally have threatened to sue for enforcement of um, the waiting study, which I think we've talked about on yes. this program before. Mm -hmm. um, I've threatened to sue the Secretary of Education for not following through with the law. Um, this is something that is available and is a right and a responsibility of citizens living in a free, free state. I think what's different, though, about the Global Warming Solutions Act is it sort of supports those lawsuits to be helpful, yes. essentially. Mm -hmm. So in Massachusetts, especially, um, in order sort of they went through a slightly similar process and came to a lawsuit, but the law, the law that they had did not have the same mechanisms that the Global Warming Solutions Act has. And so when the lawsuit came, it went through court hearing after court hearing, up the chain, up the chain. And there wasn't the same systems in place to just say, okay, there's a lawsuit, it's you know found favorable or not, and then here is the solution. It goes directly to the administration to say implement. And so it caused a lot of time and a lot of confusion, whereas this, rather than actually expanding the right to sue, it narrows the scope of what a lawsuit would look like. Yes, good point. Significantly yes. narrows it. And, and so there's actually... no monetary findings. There's yeah. no anything. It's mm -hmm. just you. the only way to sue on this is you sue to force the administration, a particular department in the administration, to say, do your job. Mm -hmm. Yes. This was a very important issue for me as well. And so, you know, I think I, I, I mentioned earlier that um, that the uh, that it, the bill had been introduced the year before and it was in an unworkable form. And <clears throat> there were two issues for me that um, had to happen in order for me to get on board with this bill. Um, and I wanted to. One was we had to fix this cause of action piece. Um, and the other was to ensure that the that 
it was clearly and definitely articulated that this plan would include and look specifically at our rural um, and vulnerable communities and climate. And that's education. the part I really want to talk about before you have to jump off, Laura. Um, so there's what the governor was concerned about, which mm -hmm. I think got a lot of media coverage and was sort of the main focus of the debate. But what I'm hearing from a few constituents about, and I'm sure you're hearing from more constituents about, is um, this fear, I think a warranted fear, um, that a sweeping solution to climate change and global warming is going to um, put anyone who has a sort of fuel-related job out of work, mm -hmm. is going to force everyone to drive an electric car, and we're all going to have to move out of our off our dirt roads and our mountaintops like into efficiency apartments in the city. And so that sort of disruption to the way people are living their lives without um, regard for the financial impacts on mm -hmm. struggling families is, I think, the Vermonters that I know, their biggest fear around climate change. And I think part of that is because the debate has been very, very class biased up yeah. until now. Mm -hmm. It's been righteous, it's been condescending, and it's focused really on like, you know, 50, 50 grand solar panels on people's brand new roofs and like the latest Tesla. And that's not what most of us can do when we think about climate change. So I would love to hear more about how you've, um, really been thinking about this as someone who I know really cares deeply about the working class folks in your town and who also lives on a mountaintop. Yeah, towns, six of towns. them, very rural. Six um, you know, Emily, we've done a lot of work on broadband as well. I know this mm -hmm. is a passion you and I share. Yeah. And, you know, I equate some of this exactly to the broadband issue. You know, mm -hmm. we are left in many of our communities right now with this deteriorating, um, not to be replaced, uh, copper landline and and for some of our folks that's all they have to communicate they don't have internet they don't have cell yeah. um, not available and mm -hmm. as that's getting worse and worse uh, and no one is coming in to replace it we have a, we have an emerging really dangerous situation for we are you know, leaving people behind yeah absolutely yeah and we've still and, left people behind when I think about climate change and the impact on some of our um, some of our communities it's, you know, we still have communities that are suffering the effects of Irene that like no one ever showed back up. And we actually have a bill on the floor today that I think is gonna do some great work to support Mountain Home to, yes. um, oh, good. to take that transition finally. So when I think about, you know, um, and, and part of the reason that that happened with telecommunications is just deregulation and our inability to really um, get our harms. And it's hard to think about replacing the whole telecommunications system in Right. And it's easier to kick the can down the road because that's expensive and difficult. And, you know, the federal government was not being helpful. Um, imagine what climate change is um, is going to be like, you know, and when I think about and I listen to um, the debate, my committee, you know, we'll, we're talking about electric buses, you know, and and, you know, I'm often saying, OK, well, I appreciate this incentive around electric buses. Um, that's great. Um, you know, we're helping to transform, trans, um, you know, transportation systems in places where with population density. What what is the effect that that is having in our rural areas? You know, um, and it will have effects. You know, I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by um, the economic effects of choices that we make in general. I listen to this great podcast, Freakonomics, which kind of looks at the unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So I think Emily's right. You know, this whole climate change has been 
people have been adapting that can afford to adapt. Right. And that mm -hmm. has economic consequences. Yesterday, I spoke about on the floor, um, BP, British Petroleum, it's one of the, I think they call them super majors. Um, there's like six or seven of them, yeah. um, oil and gas exploration companies and companies in, in the world. Um, they've made this major announcement um, of a billions, billions in shift uh, of their investments and business strategy away from oil and gas and into renewables and, um, and climate adaptation. And they're not doing that, you know, out of the goodness of their heart. Right. You know, I mean, that's a for-profit company. And yeah. so, you know, they're going to die if they don't adapt. <clears throat> so what does that mean for the rest of us? You know, as the oil and gas is shifting, you know, the little, my little people in Reedsboro, like they're not going to see this coming, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, five years from now when gas is $5 a gallon, you know, uh, because we're past peak oil. Um, when, you know, it's going to be hard for them to adapt when we don't have electric charging infrastructure, um, when we don't have, you know, when we haven't considered how, um, how jobs will, um, will adjust or shift um, because of climate change. It's going to be hard for them. I love, I appreciate what you're saying about the fact that like the world is adapting. Yeah. And we need to make sure we're in front of that adaptation or so many of our communities going to get left behind. So rich people are adapting, corporations are adapting, yes. and the rest of us need government in order to like really have the infrastructure to be adapting. Or at least to help outline what is the yeah. plan, you know, yeah. I mean, even to help private sector, you know, see a means of, you know, getting involved in, mm -hmm. in our rural communities and, and, you know, seeing an opportunity to make money and helping those communities transform. But mm -hmm. in our schools, right? Yeah. These punk and old um, fossil fuel systems, you know, I've been on a school board for 17 years, 18 maybe now. Thank you, Laura. Too long. Too long. Um, and, you know, I've seen some pretty wild fluctuations in the cost of oil and gas. I mean, if we are at peak oil, you know, at, you know, we're, what's going to happen here? We need to have plans. It doesn't, you don't just on a dime say, okay, well, we're done with that. Now we're going to build, you know, a $200,000 alternative heating structure for our, you know, 100,000 square foot, you know, building. I, we have to have some time to plan. I, I like okay. what, what both you, Laura and Emily are saying about, um, this plan and adaptation that I think we forget how much of it is connected to infrastructure, whether it's replacing a furnace with solar panels, whatever that infrastructure is, and we forget how expensive a lot of these infrastructure changes can be. And for rural communities, they are often so spread out that the companies in charge of building this infrastructure, aka broadband, there's no uh, economy of scale for them. So there's no incentive in many cases for them to go in and do this work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and this, is, this is not little stuff. You know, I mean, this is a big deal and it's consequential and it's also not optional. So, you know, this is happening. It's, it's how we are going to respond to it that is optional. And you know, just leaving our, um, I'm, I'm not willing to just let those that can afford to adapt 
um, adapt and leave my people behind again. I want a plan that includes my people and that allows us to think about how we can all protect ourselves and flourish in a changing economy. So, so well said. Thank it's you. so well said. Yeah. And um, <laughs> it's so well timed too, because Laura has to go to another meeting. Um, and so even though there is a boatload of more things we could talk about with the Global Solutions Act, um, unfortunately, we have to let Laura go. So hang in, listeners. Uh, Laura Sibelia, representative, thank you for joining us Bye. this morning. Hang on, listeners, on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro Community Radio Station. We will Happy hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters. And if you're just joining us, we, in the first half of the this show, had Laura Sibelia on to talk about the Global Solutions oh. Warming Act and climate change. And now we're going to The Global talk- Warming Solutions Act. Oh, good gosh. What did I call it? I don't know. You, the words were in a different order. Uh, it's seven o'clock in the morning. I it, yeah. don't think anyone. I'm just <laughs> don't hold it against the record me. straight. No, I'm just setting the record straight. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. Mm-hmm. Um, and now Emily Kornheiser and I are going to talk about unemployment if we can get the words in the right order. And the common theme, I think, across both of these conversations, there are many, but um, the one that's sticking with me today is that um, not leaving anyone behind. Mm-hmm. And I want to remind folks listening wherever you are, watching wherever you are, that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and anyone else who jumps into the screen, but not of any of the various stations this is um, played or shown on, broadcast on, yeah. Um, I also want to tell folks that, um, or really just tell you, Olga, because I don't know if we're going to have time for a toast today, that I was um, out of milk this morning because I didn't have time to go pick up my milk at the farm yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so I put chocolate gelato in my tea. So I'm having a really nice time of it I, over here. I was thinking, I, I was looking at the mm-hmm. size of your great big yeah. green mug and my mm-hmm. mug and thinking, boy, I have not had enough caffeine. I'm not keeping up with. Well, I'm just drinking morning. hot ice cream. <laughs> so you're just happy you're unhappy just, i'm having a great day yeah it's gonna be a good day <laughs> oh i have a heart on my mug that's also really nice it's just sweet mm-hmm. yeah. we need that and you know while we're talking about politics and people not being left behind mm-hmm. okay um, so in a world that's all topsy-turvy this week oh there's some deep apocalypse going around <laughs> deep apocalypse so um That's going to be the name of our second punk album. <laughs> like as if there could be a shallow apocalypse. Like, <laughs> like you don't need to like, modify the word apocalypse. No, it kind of stands right on its own. It really does. It really does. It's like, you know, you wouldn't like, even like death, like gruesome death. Like even that, like that, maybe you could modify, but apocalypse, it doesn't, it's just, it's just there with those spiky A's. Mm-hmm. So, um, unemployment. 
let's talk about it. We yes. um, have talked about it a lot on the show. We know that um, the economy was shut down. I think probably everyone listening knows that mm-hmm. when COVID came to America, not when COVID came to Italy, which would have been a probably better time to shut down the economy so as to prevent many deaths, but we did not do that. And in some areas of the country, we have not shut anything down at all. But here in Vermont, we shut the economy down and some other places that have um, large contributions to the U.S. economy, we also shut things down, such as New York. And so a lot of people are out of work. Mm -hmm. The legislature, back when it was in the real life, which was the week after town meeting, was the last week the legislature was in session. For non-Vermonters, that's March. Oh, thank you. That um, that week, we knew that stuff was getting dark, needed to prepare for it. So that final week, which is usually crossover week, it's the week we pass our final legislation before it goes over to the Senator of the House, the other body. We were focused on like emergency COVID legislation. And the Commerce Committee, which was the committee I was on then, not on that committee anymore, but we... Um, passed a bunch of modifications to unemployment insurance. And the one that I think is very important for today that I wanna talk about Mm -hmm. is we changed the rules for why someone could quit a job and still be eligible for unemployment. Right. And the word quit is actually a technical word and it just means depart essentially. And so there's quit for cause and you know no cause and firing and all this stuff, but essentially saying that someone could leave work because they don't have childcare related to COVID or because they have a health concern or someone in their immediate family has a health concern that they need to care for. So those are two reasons that generally one cannot be on unemployment. In the pre-COVID world, if you were on unemployment and you didn't have childcare, that meant that you were not ready and willing to return to work. And so Mm -hmm. you were not eligible for unemployment. In this new COVID world, we were saying you're eligible for unemployment in those two categories, and we're not going to blame or penalize your employer for that. So there's something called an experience rating, which is how which is how employers pay for their portion of unemployment insurance. Mm -hmm. So we did those things to really expand unemployment insurance into a safety net. Mm -hmm. Soon after that, the federal government picked up their shoes and put them on and got ready to face this issue a little bit. Hold on, they're adult campers. Maybe. They seem to have taken them off again, but (laughs) they were on for a little while and they passed expanded unemployment benefits. That was an extra $600 a week, which made a huge difference in so many Vermonters' lives because it meant that usually unemployment insurance is just a fraction of your weekly earnings. And this for many Vermonters brought it actually up above their regular weekly earnings. Yeah. It was an incredibly beautiful, powerful thing to do when someone is living in extreme stress. Mm-hmm. It's saying like, you're living in extreme stress. We all feel like the apocalypse is coming. We didn't know how apocalyptic it would be yet. And at least you won't have to worry about this one thing for now. Yeah. Then we entered the period where thousands of Vermonters tried to apply for unemployment. And we hit up against a computer system from 1983 
many, many people couldn't get unemployment. The state government fumbled and fumbled and fumbled and fumbled and fumbled. Legislators jumped in and tried to help. We helped somewhat. We are, lots of people then got unemployment, including the $600 benefit. That was great. Then we sort of entered the June, July period where there were still a lot of people struggling with adjudication, meaning if there was a challenge in your unemployment insurance application, you could only go to these very specialized folks who really understand unemployment procedures. And so you were going to be in a waiting period of purgatory for a long time. And that's not stressful at all. So stressful. And like people will call you. And if you don't answer, you might have to wait another three weeks or month. I talked to some constituents on the phone who are just like bringing their phone with them everywhere. They were purposely not ever going anywhere that they were out of range. They were like answering the phone at the playground with their kids before the playground shut down, all kinds of mess. There are still some folks trapped in that mm -hmm. and um, still fighting hard for you. So then there's also a category of folks who previous to this crisis had been on unemployment at some point. Ah. And some of those folks encountered some problem while they were on unemployment, mm -hmm. whether it was a paperwork error on their part, paperwork error on their employer's part, a paperwork error on the state's part, or someone maybe like, you know, was getting more money than they thought they should, but like free money is really hard to say no to. And so a lot of those folks, eventually the state usually catches up with that error, but sometimes it's after the money's been going out the door for a long time. Mm. And when that happens, the state almost always finds that person at fault. Mm -hmm. And that person is basically assumed to have committed fraud. And Which is not a small thing. It is not a small thing. And it's not necessarily... Um, I want to almost say that the state assumes fraud to such an extent that it's value neutral about it. Hmm. So um, some days I feel like the state just always assumes that everyone's a terrible person with bad intentions. And that's why they assume everyone's committing fraud. Um, but I think actually bureaucracy is not in fact a person. And for the most part, it's just like the mechanisms in place assume fraud. Yeah. not And don't assume that fraud is bad or good. They just assume fraud. So there was a bunch of people who had that experience. And when that happens, you are both required to pay back that money out of your unemployment earnings. And you almost always wind up in something called penalty weeks, mm -hmm. which are extra weeks that you cannot receive unemployment in addition to the time that you're paying back the unemployment benefits that are just punishment for your assumed fraud. Mm -hmm. So we have a whole category of folks who maybe years ago were on unemployment for a short time or a long time, wound up in this situation and then have not been able to collect benefits during this period of complete crisis, where in good times, they might have been able to um, sort of hustle and get a job that might not be in their field or might not be the income that they want, but at least would make them as much as they would have on unemployment. In these times, people can't do that, mm -hmm. especially, you know, say in March or April. Right. And so 
we have this whole category of people who aren't in adjudication, they're in penalty week land. So that was sort of happening, really became a big issue in May and June. Okay. Then in July, stay with me on this timeline here. In July, the extra $600 a month went poof away. Yes. And I've skipped the whole, um, sort of contractor versus employee thing. We're not going to get into that today, but that's probably it added good. another layer of chaos and nuance to the whole thing. I think that's mostly been figured out. The six, extra $600 a month expired in July. Before that, a lot of people thought that the federal government was going to act to do something about that, mm -hmm. but that did not happen right. for a wide variety of reasons. Um, and now people are in this really hard spot because unemployment's not enough to live on. And mm -hmm. still many, many people don't have childcare or have health risks. Mm -hmm. So there are two things that are happening that I wanna talk about today, now that I've gone through this whole long cycle and I think we're almost out of time. We can go a little bit over time, but you of course also have a meeting. I do, I have to go to committee, I have to go to Ways and Means. So the things that are happening that I just sort of want to flag for people because this is not like ever done mm -hmm. is that we, um, I put forward a bill to the House Commerce Committee to um, pause, it was actually to um, either to give the commissioner the right to cancel penalty weeks, but, and to say that during a crisis such as COVID, penalty weeks do not apply. And I think that's going to hopefully pass out of House Commerce today. And that feels like a big win. And put, they put in a mechanism that's not just during public health emergencies or other states of emergency. It's also just any time that the unemployment rate rises precipitously, meaning it rises oh. very fast. So any economic crisis of any kind, whether that is because of public health or climate or whatever other version of the apocalypse, the... Um, penalty weeks will not apply. So that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Also, when we put in those changes to the law around childcare and public health risks and health risks for unemployment, we did the opening. That's a reason to quit your job. We did not do the closing. What's a reasonable reason to refuse work in the future. Oh. So as the economy has been reopening, there have been some folks who have not been able to go back to work because we know that many people still do not have childcare because our schools are... Well, that's an issue for another day. Maybe going through what they're going. Yes. Yes. Um, and many folks still have health risks. And so folks are being offered work because their businesses are reopening, wherever they worked is reopening, but they're having to say no. And those folks are getting caught in that terrible adjudication whirlpool that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So um, that same bill that I put forward is closing that loop um, and saying, like making a little legal sandwich, this is a reasonable reason to quit. It's also a reasonable reason to refuse. Before COVID, we, um, that sandwich was in place. It was just a different sandwich. And so we've, um, so glad to sort of close that loop. Any reason that it would be a reasonable reason to quit is also a reasonable reason to refuse work. So that's really nice. The last thing, is that um, the federal government put forward a brand new mechanism to add extra money onto unemployment benefits. It was $300 a week. It's through FEMA for some reason that doesn't really make sense to me. 
and um, offered states the ability to add a hundred extra hundred dollars in benefits hmm. for because of this FEMA thing. And I think because the federal government it, um, right now with this administration likes to make everything as difficult as possibly possible to administer so they can pretend that they're meeting people's needs. But in fact, then state governments get completely blamed for not meeting people's needs. Um, the we have that right now in front of us in the state house okay. so it will be only a few weeks it's only enough money from the feds to do a few weeks mm -hmm. of this additional benefits we have to set up a totally different administration system for it which will cost the state money oh, but we are wanting to move forward with that hoping to make that work and hoping to add an extra hundred dollars on top of that and sort of that's something that's being um discussed right now in the legislature whether like where that extra hundred dollars a week would come from so it's three hundred dollars from the feds and then we paste in an extra hundred dollars from vermont and that would only be for a few weeks but a few weeks is better than nothing and maybe by then we will have a congress that can get it done november is around the corner oh well Thank you, Emily, and thank you You're for welcome. getting all that in. And yeah. like, <laughs> so we do have a quick moment for a toast, and I want to toast. Actually, oddly as it is, I want to toast COVID because it has given us the impetus. I guess is the word we're looking for, and the kick up the backside to actually start filling in many of the holes in our society that existed before COVID. But now we can actually, we're actually paying attention to them. So there's the silver linings. The veil being pulled off. <laughs> and ice cream in your tea. And ice cream in your tea. Okay. I'm going to try that next week. So Thanks Emily, if people need to find you, where can they find you? Oh, such a good question. They can find me at emilykornheiser.org or on any of your usual social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Emily Kornheiser works. Um, there's two Facebooks. There's my personal Facebook and my re representative Facebook. Nothing happens on the personal Facebook. So you're welcome to friend me, but it will be boring for you. The other places you can find me is every Saturday at 10 a.m. hosting a community conversation via Zoom. You can find the links to that at any of the channels I previously mentioned, or feel free to email me or give me a call. You can find all of those addresses on my website so I don't have to spell my last name for you here on the radio. <laughs> and you're listening to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, as well as Brattleboro Community Television and good old favorite YouTube. You can find us at 2 p.m. on the radio station or anytime on our Vermontitude SoundCloud page or our Vermontitude Facebook page. Have a great weekend, everyone.